Hey East Meets West listeners, in this week's episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the content strategies of two of the biggest players in the streaming industry, Netflix and Amazon. With the rise of streaming services across the world, it's more important than ever to understand how these companies are shaping the entertainment landscape and competing for viewership. We'll be examining their unique approaches to content creation and distribution, including how they're looking to incorporate content from Asian markets like anime and K-dramas. As always, keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to the East Meets West podcast, a podcast about understanding Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. My name is Dan, joining me from Astral Ventures, Albert. How are things going? Dan, going good. Uh, recording uh, in person today in your kind of beautiful conference room. Thank you for having me. No problem. It's a nice sunny day outside. We can see with our windows. Uh, today we're talking about streaming, Albert. I think this is a really good one. I always enjoy our chats about content, about streaming, what are the trends, what are different companies doing. This week we're kind of exploring, you know, particularly the big Western players like Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney, and then maybe bringing a little bit of perspective about what their Asian counterparts are doing, but really with a, a tight focus on content strategy. What sort of originally sparked this interest for you, Albert, to just do a bit of a deep dive into this topic today? Look, we were talking about this this week. You know, Netflix have come out and said they want to invest about two and a half bill into kind of Korean and international content. Obviously, they've done really well, and we've talked about this with like Squid Game, um, a Tony Woo, and things like that. And so, they're pretty interested in monetizing and investing internationally and building out a content. They've seen that it works well for their Western and Eastern audiences. I think what we wanted to start to explore is like. Why aren't some of the other streaming services doing this as well, like Amazon and Disney Plus, and understanding how these different streaming services play and invest to then understand what's driving their like content and acquisition strategies? Yeah, and, and what really interested me about this is, you know, there's there's just not much information out there about like the internal metrics which they're using to drive their decisions. It's really difficult to understand, you know, what are the cost profiles, as an example, for Netflix to acquire, um, you know, a Korean-made film at a lower, not lower, but a, at a smaller development production company in Korea, and then spin that out compared to, you know, an Amazon Prime, which is then using Hollywood Studios to produce a Lord of the Rings TV series. It's kind of hard to understand the metrics, hard to understand, or they're just not available what the expected viewership numbers are. So we kind of get to have this fun game, Albert, of seeing the external outputs, such as what content they're acquiring and trying to backwards reason and understand, well, what is their content strategy? And now that a bit of time has passed, I think it's pretty clear that these big streamers have got different approaches. Where do you want to dive in to start to start unpacking the different approaches taken by the big streamers? Let's quickly just set the lay of the land here and outline which streamers we're talking about and what their high-level strategies are. So maybe I'll, I'll go first and quickly talk about Netflix, obviously one of the largest streaming services. I guess one of the, the OGs of streaming. And so Netflix, they had a pretty broad strategy to begin with where they were predominantly licensing a lot of IP, and that was just to build a kind of an initial customer base. 
but really came out of the gate swinging, I think in 2013 or 2014, when they launched uh, their first original series, House of Cards, and that made you know, a, a pretty big splash in the streaming kind of service. It was one of the first original pieces of programming available on a streaming service. And now they've really started to over-index in original programming, where almost everything now they produce is either original programming that they've produced or uh, things that they've got exclusive license to that they've partnered with a production studio. Yeah, and we've talked about the reasons for this, not just when looking at Netflix, but Spotify and some of these other services, where a real driver for that is keeping costs down. Uh, if you're creating the content yourself, then you have full ownership rights over the IP and you're not paying you know, this per viewer sort of clip um, for people watching. The other streamers we're looking at, Albert, just going back to the lay of the land. So Netflix, subscri subscriber count of about 220 million. Amazon Prime Video, similar amount, 220 million. Disney Plus, 130 million. We'll probably touch a little bit on HBO Max, uh, 80 million subscribers, just because there's some prestige TV like Succession, which I think gives some really interesting counterpoints to some of the other trends going on. But I think what we're doing is we're focusing on these big streamers because we can already see a difference in approach. And take this where you want to, Albert, but if I were to just have a go at summarizing, Netflix, original content strategy, Disney Plus, acquire and maximize uh, the value out of your IPs. That to me is the Star Wars approach. Great way to put it. And then Amazon is a bit of a mismatch caught in between. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but they're definitely taking aspects of both and throwing in sports on top of it uh, to really have their own unique flavor on their content strategy. Yeah, we'll, we'll dive into it, but great overview. And I think when I think about those three super on point, Netflix and Disney have been so deliberate in how they execute on this. And I think it's because they come from a basis that they were content businesses or are content businesses. Amazon Prime just feels, like Amazon Prime Video to be specific, just feels so reactive in comparison to the other two. Obviously, they're not originally a content business. They've had a bit of leadership change from Bezos to Jesse. And so to me, it really feels like Amazon is just being reactive to how competitive the market has become. So one of the drivers we were looking at, Albert, to sort of retrofit why are these content strategies going these directions is Netflix has this extraordinary growth of subscribers and now they're looking to keep people engaged on the platform. They're trying to keep their churn lower and please a really diverse audience set. Like I think out of all the streamers, they've got the most globalized audience across different regions. And the way they think of doing that is just pumping out original content. And I think if I was being a bit mean, sometimes at the cost of quality, how do you kind of view that dynamic, Albert? Yeah, so <laughs> I think quality is, uh, there's always a subjective and objective lens to quality. And so I agree there's always variations in objectively the quality of the things that Netflix can produce. I think from a investment perspective, obviously, you know, you're rattling off how many, uh, it's like 220 million or so subscribers for Netflix. Uh, that's like a cost base or a subscriber base you can amortize content across. So if you're investing, say, you know, a billion dollars a year as Netflix into content, that means you're really investing like $5 per user 
per year to create net new content. And so it really becomes an easy decision for them because they know it leads to like greater engagement, it leads to you know, new customer acquisition, to just invest in a lot of content, whether it's like uh, incredibly high quality or whether it's lower quality, because having more content then leads to ideally more eyeballs on the platform because everyone has different viewing habits and people want to watch, some people want to watch something really high quality and some people want to just watch a bit of trash. I like to flirt between both. Um, depending on the mood. And so I think that's the way they think about it. But then when I think about how does Amazon think about this question, I think they've got the same issue, which is they've got this large subscriber base, also propped up obviously by Amazon Prime subscriptions, which they're getting through their e-commerce platform. But their answer to that is, let's not do original content you know, at the scale of Netflix, because there's more of a risk there, less control over... Uh, quality, you just don't know what's going to be a hit these days. They're looking at the sure bets. So $1 billion annual deal with NFL, National Football League, to have exclusive streaming rights, buying Lord of the Rings, again, at about a $1 billion price to have the rights and uh, ability to have six TV series based off uh, some of the IP with Lord of the Rings. To me, that is them saying, we know people watch Lord of the Rings, we know people watch the NFL, so we're buying high-quality, pretty sure bet content to plug in and please our subscribers. Yeah, the, this is interesting to me because there's obviously not a kind of a big content acquisition that Netflix has done. Netflix don't have, you know, a big sports streaming platform like um, NFL and Amazon Prime Video. They also haven't bought anything of scale. I think the biggest they, they bought was... Uh, Rodal for about 700 million uh, access and um, ownership over that IP. I think when I look at Amazon and what they're doing, it almost feels like it is a bit of a scattergun approach. So they've got this high quality IP in Lord of the Rings, and we should say that it's like a small slither of what Lord of the Rings is. They've also got this like huge sport franchise in the NFL. And then they've got pieces of original programming and content, um, movies and things like that. Like they've got that, that TV show with Chris Pratt. They've got some pretty interesting movies. They just recently launched um, a movie, a uh, TV show, sorry, about management consultants um, with Christoph Waltz. And so they are playing a similar game to both Netflix in that they're getting kind of big movie stars to come in and make TV shows and movies. They're also playing a similar game to Disney Plus in that they're acquiring you know, really strong historic IP, but I feel like they're just not executing it particularly well because they're trying to do both things at once, whereas Disney and Netflix have chosen a specific lane and are kind of staying in that lane. So if we look at Disney Plus now, and we are talking about this before we started recording, when you're doing the pure sort of pure play, take an IP, maximise it, you're thinking of some of the Disney franchises, the princesses, like Frozen. I can't imagine a better way of taking one movie and just absolutely spinning it across merchandising, across ice skating shows, across TV sort of spin-offs. They really turn the wheel on um, Frozen to sort of have this high value IP. And the other parallel would be something like the Marvel movie franchise where you're taking this huge library being very deliberate about a strategy over a decade plus 
and now it's turned to basically every movie that's put out as a Marvel one has this huge mainstream and cult following. If I'm looking at what Amazon Prime is doing with Lord of the Rings, I feel like unless you have that level of focus, you're just not going to quite get that same flywheel turning because you're just, as you said, Albert, taking a scattergun approach. Yeah, I think of it's almost like, I feel like Netflix, in a sense, is very progressive with its content and its content acquisition because it's willing to invest and partner and license content that people haven't heard of and then are willing to give it a go because it's on Netflix. Like Squid Game is a really good example of that. They've got a few other things, but because Netflix have got a pretty established brand of you know, generally producing pretty interesting shows and film, people are willing to take a bet on Netflix and the content they produce. The inverse of that is like Disney, which I think they're probably a lot more conservative with their content because they don't take huge bets on the, say, not type of IP, but the IP itself. Like you said, they're kind of milking the Star Wars franchise, which they acquired, the Marvel franchise, which they've acquired. If you go on Disney+, Plus, you can see, you know, the 50 uh, TV shows of Disney and Star Wars, etc. But to me, it's almost very conservative because they're really just innovating on the fringes of that IP as opposed to um, pushing through new content. So if we look at what's happening in Asia, Albert, now just sort of flipping across, I was really thinking about Sony when sort of researching for this episode because they have what I sort of would label as like a multimodal view of content where they obviously plugged into merchandise, but when they have, you know, a sort of cartoon piece of IP, they're thinking about big feature anime films, they're thinking about the TV show, they're also thinking about gaming. And it's that third one which me seems really off the map for all of those streamers that we've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes. Do you think that is an Asia-specific thing? Do you think that's a blind spot for some of these Western streamers or do you think that's a deliberate choice to kind of exclude gaming from the content flywheel that they're sort of generating on? Yeah, so it's a good question. So Netflix do have a pretty good suite of games and I think they mentioned in their uh, updated investor letter for the last quarter, Q1 23, they've got about 40 games coming up. And so they, they do think about gaming as another modality for them to keep people engaged. <laughs> it's funny because they don't talk about metrics and when specifically asked about engagement metrics for gaming, they, they don't want to get into the specifics and, and say that. The other two I think about then is like Amazon and Disney. Obviously, Amazon has its like gaming platform, but it's, it's probably not as well developed. And then Disney who leveraged their IP and just license it out for gaming. So a very different scattergun approach. But I think the key is like neither of the three see gaming as like maybe Netflix, but they don't touch upon it too much as a really core pillar of what their business is yet. And I think that's a big blind spot for them. I agree because when we think of, I mean, last year was a little bit the year of AR, VR, and uh, I think there was a real consciousness there about content being across all of these different modalities with Meta obviously leading the charge there. And now that's really kind of fallen off the map. And I, I really can't see why. To me, it's so clear, even if you have something like Harry Potter, uh, A-grade, top-tier piece of content, originally from books, 
then into movies, now spinning off potentially into IP for TV shows. And games to me fit so well into that bracket of what could Harry Potter be, what could Lord of the Rings be, what could some of these Disney franchises be. I think, as you say, Albert, it's a big blind spot and I'm just curious as to why these Western streamers aren't pursuing it more as a pillar as opposed to something just slightly on the side. Yeah, I think that the the challenge is having someone who's the right steward for that particular IP and there's not that many to go around. Like Harry Potter, they obviously had Legacy, Hogwarts Legacy, which recently came out and it's had pretty huge waves. Uh, I haven't played it, have you? No. It's on our list to get a PlayStation 5. And and so... um, I think that the challenge is having someone within the business who actually can become a a great, not only advocate, but a steward for that content. In the same way that, like, Kevin Feige has become a steward for owning and looking after, like, a custodian of the Marvel content, right? I think he probably sees it as, like, I have the privilege to now work with this content. It's my responsibility to make sure I get and build it, or continue to build it into, like, an enduring franchise, and I, I handle it with the kind of care that, say, Stan Lee would want me to handle it with, as opposed to, I don't know if there's someone within Amazon who is thinking about Lord of the Rings in the same way and saying, like, I'm now a steward for this IP. How do I continue to build that and manage this IP in the way that Tolkien would have wanted me to? That's such a good call out because, you know, what you hear around Amazon with that IP is, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos' son saying to him, Dad, don't screw this up because, you know, he's such a big Tolkien fan. But that's kind of, it goes back to your initial comment at the top, Albert. Amazon feels kind of reactive. And I'd always be concerned if your content strategy is based off what the son of the founder and CEO is kind of whispering to him at the dinner table, as opposed to, as you said, Albert, having this real steward of the IP of, of the content. Uh, let's start to wrap up, Albert. Any sort of final thoughts on these content streamers? Yes, yeah, so I, I think something we haven't kind of double-clicked into yet, which is probably worth uh, pushing, is this interesting shift at the moment around anime yeah. and uh, not only just like anime but leveraging that content to... Uh, you know, non-traditional audiences like Western audiences. So one of the biggest animes at the moment is uh, uh, One Piece. I don't know if anyone's listened to One Piece or read One Piece. Uh, one of the biggest animes that ever to come, manga anime to come out of Japan, consistently top seller. Netflix have acquired the rights to a One Piece uh, streaming show, a TV series that they're producing, I think, 10 episodes. And I think per episode it's like 20 mil. So it's going to be much larger than of the HBO investment into Game of Thrones, which is ridiculous. They're building these, like, ginormous sets. They're building all the set pieces. I think they've even built a ship because it's about pirates. And so I think there's a pretty interesting slow trend here where there's going to be a lot of Western studios at least looking at what the next IP they can leverage and what they can push. And it's just fortunate that there's a lot of IP in Japan, in anime, with a lot of existing customer base. Yeah, so One Piece as an example has got about $20 billion uh, in terms of total revenue grossed. Uh, that puts it right next to Toy Story and Lord of the Rings wow. in terms of wow. similar revenue grossed. And you're right, when you look at that list, and we've done this before, Albert, when looking at sort of the top content deals out of Asia, so many of these deals are actually arising based out of Asia, uh, IP, like Pokemon, Hello Kitty, 
Mario, we just saw the recent movie release for that. So yeah, I think that's a deep well to plug. And I'm, I'm just so glad you brought it up, Albert, because now I think you've really framed how I think, which is, but for these content streamers, who's the steward who actually understands the value of the IP and can frame the way it's then packaged, sold, distributed to these Western audiences in a way that maximizes its value? And we just haven't seen who that person could be yet. Yeah, I, I think there is... But even potentially someone who is unknown, I don't know who the showrunners for the Netflix One Piece series are. They could be huge One Piece fans, and I'm sure they are. And I'm sure the people who are um, in the show are potentially huge One Piece fans, have become huge One Piece fans. But I think the stewardship and the custodianship of IP is such an important enabler of IP success because we've seen what Kevin Feige has done with Marvel, We've seen how DC have kind of failed to do that because they don't have someone pushing that. You know, I don't know what the broader vision is for Lord of the Rings. Uh, I would say, like, Netflix have good custodians of their IP. And so I think if there is the person, and it's funny how important the person is when it comes to this thing, who can push IP and push the boundaries of it, that's probably one of the biggest enablers of success. All right, Albert, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to the East Meets West podcast, podcast about Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. Thanks for listening. If you're not already subscribed, please remember to hit that follow button and leave us a five-star review. Every follow and rating really helps us out. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.